Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. If we haven't met, my name is Kyle. Um, if we haven't met, it's probably been beneficial for you. Sorry, that's over now. Uh, you now know my name. What's that? Yes, it is. Yes, awesome. Yes, so uh, in short, um, I'm on the ministry staff here at Redemption Hill. Um, I also, uh, my actual job is I'm a professional Bible nerd. I teach Bible and history um, at the high school level at a, a local high school. Um, my specific loves, I get really excited about biblical interpretation as a discipline. I spend a lot of time analyzing the literary structure of the text, and my other interest is spending a lot of time studying the cultural historical backgrounds that are going on behind the text, um, and you're going to see a lot of that today. Um, all right, so we've been working through First John. Last week, uh, Cindy spoke. Um, it kind of feels hard coming up after Cindy. Cindy's amazing. It's hard to top that for sure. Um, she started off looking at a poem in 1 John chapter 2. Um, if I could have the first slide, Kim. All right. And so this is the part that she was working with, and I have to look at what she said because it goes right into what I need to talk about today. This poem, it's, it's set up in two stanzas, and it actually really sets up what John wants us to know moving forward. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children. Two weeks ago, we, we saw that he initiated the calling them children, talking about the fellowship of the church and the, the family bond there. Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. We talked about the atonement. Um, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Note the phrase there, beginning. That's the third time John's used that word. And we're not even halfway through the second chapter of 1 John. Maybe it's important. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Um, you can probably note that there's some patriarchal language in there that's culturally contextual. He's not just speaking to the men. The very opening statement of dear children is general. That's a, a, a key to helping you understand who he's talking there. He's talking to everybody that's there. Uh, next slide, please, Kim. And then he says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. The Father is knowable. He makes himself knowable. I write to you, fathers, because you Know him who is from the beginning. That's now the fourth time that that phrase pops up. It's going to be important. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. 
Okay, the father is knowable. You've had a chance to get to know him. His story is there from the beginning. It's always been there. Uh, Your sins have been forgiven. It's been atoned. So now that those have been atoned for, you are free to move forward in your journey. And there's a big emphasis. You've overcome the evil one. Now that all of that's already set up, the question is, now what? Now we get to dive into the part that I'm going to talk about today. If I could have the next slide. There we go. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. That word world, uh, cosmos, uh, has a couple of different possible meanings. It could mean just everything that God has created, um, but in John's writings, he makes, it, he makes it clear that he set it up to mean specifically the worldviews that are in rebellion or opposition to God. That's how it's being used. Not the people themselves, the worldviews that are in opposition to God. Okay? Do not love those worldviews or anything associated with those worldviews, those systems. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So what are we going to do with this? I'm going to pray real fast. We'll let God lead us on this journey. Father, you've you've put a message on my heart today, but this is a message that is from you, not from me. I pray that you will work through it. I pray that you will transform our hearts and help us understand what it looks like to live according to your worldview, your systems, not the systems of the world. Love you. Amen. All right. So to understand this, he's given us the secret decoder ring. He says, look at the beginning. He's already told us four times, look at the beginning, and we're not even halfway through chapter two. So we get to look at the beginning. Um, All right, so I'm going to go to Genesis 1. And as I go to Genesis 1, I'm going to guess that when I say Genesis 1, for at least some of you, certain ideas, uh, if you could hold off on that one for a second, Kim, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, Certain ideas start to pop up for you. Um, probably some science questions, some different things like that, right? Um, Here's the deal. We need to ask, when did Genesis actually pop up? So, if you know your story of the Old Testament, you have the patriarchs, you have all of them, but they didn't have written scripture. They had stories they were passing on. And then Israel finds themselves in Egypt, a small people group that makes it to Egypt, and they're there for about 400 years. And while they're there, at one point, they become slaves to Egypt. Okay, um, And while they're there, slaves to Egypt, God shows up, not because they earned it, not because they deserved it. God shows up, and he fights to set them free. Now, we know those stories. Many of us do. Maybe you've seen some good Hollywood movie or... Maybe you've just been well-trained by watching Veggie Tales, but you know those stories, right? A um, bunch of crazy things happen. 
Various places in the Bible, it tells you that those crazy things that happen is actually spiritual warfare. Multiple places in the biblical text, it tells you that God is fighting the gods of Egypt. What are those gods? I don't have time to tell you, unfortunately. And there's going to be a lot of things I'm going to tell you today I don't have time to tell you, so please feel free to talk to me about it. But in the ancient world, different people groups, different nations had their gods. What are those gods? Probably demonic forces. But either way, the text tells you that's spiritual warfare. When the god of the Nile gets slain by God, the Nile turns red and is filled with blood. The blood from the god, okay? They know in their ancient context that it was a spiritual battle. And the mighty Egyptian gods were defeated by this god. That's crazy. That's powerful. That's what the biblical text tells you happened. So imagine being one of those Israelites, believing that you're under the power, or under the, being dominated by these powerful gods of Egypt, and then this random god just shows up. You've maybe heard a couple stories about him, but not much, and he shows up and fights them and sets you free? What would that feel like for you? And then this god takes them out into the desert and brings them to this mountain, and he does something really crazy. He says... I want to put my name on you. Now, when we think of Israel, Israel looms large in our imaginations because it's impacted both our faith and the Western world. But in the ancient world, Israel is a very, very small minority people. And not only are they a small minority people, almost irrelevant to the rest of the cultures, they're a slave people now. In the ancient world, that's a big deal. They are a super small, low-status people. Why would this God come and fight for them and then say he wants to put his name on them? What would that feel like? What, would that, what kind of questions would you be asking if that was you? I assure you the people of Israel weren't going along and they get to this mountain and they say, well, before we move forward, we need to create some schools for our kids, so we need some science textbooks to explain everything about the science of the world. That's not the questions they were asking. Those are questions we are asking. But proper biblical interpretation doesn't insert our questions into the text. It asks what they were asking. They were asking, who is this God? We don't really know much about him. Who is he? And who are we that he would put his name on us? And what is he doing? Those are the questions they're asking. So when we dive into Genesis... Those are the questions we should be asking first and foremost. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Um, okay, here's another piece to know. The Israelites weren't just existing as the only people. They're surrounded by all kinds of other cultures with all kinds of other worldviews. And we have lots of the different stories that those people passed on. Just like you live in a world with lots of different worldviews and you're inundated with hearing about those worldviews, so were they. So I don't have time to break them all down, but I'm going to do a super, super condensed, oversimplified version of what those worldviews look like. And anything I'm saying here, if I go too fast for you, feel free to ask me about it afterwards. I'm a nerd about this stuff, so I would love to explain it further for you and show you what I'm talking about. Okay, oversimplified version of those stories. You have the gods. The gods look a lot like people, but they're gods. They have flaws, they have needs, and they are providing for themselves, but they get tired of providing for themselves. And so, depending on which story you're reading, 
different things happen. Either one or more of the gods rebel and, and lose the battle and die, or they just decide there's a couple lesser gods, we'll just kill them, and out of their remains, we'll make people. Okay, so people either come from the blood of the rebellious god that was killed, or from the blood of these rebellious, uh, I'm sorry, these lesser gods, and the gods take the remains from these degenerate gods and make people. Why? To be slaves for the gods, to provide for the gods. Okay, that's important. Think about some of those concepts as we go. Okay, so people are created according to the surrounding worldviews to be slaves for the gods. The gods um, will set up systems to control the people. In their temples, which by the way, temples always have a seven-day ceremony after they're built before the god takes ownership of it. Interesting thing to note. Um, The gods will, in the temple, place an idol. It's not the god itself. It represents the god. They know that it's not the god itself. And they would call it an image of the god. Okay, that's important. Other things they would do is sometimes they would make an elite class of people For example, Pharaoh in Egypt was one of these. That would be an elite person or persons who would control the people to make sure that they properly slave for the gods and provide for the gods. Okay, You could probably imagine what sort of social systems this would create by empowering an upper class to serve the gods by controlling the rest of the people to serve the gods. Does that make sense? I know this is probably like, whoa, what is he talking about here? But... What ends up happening, so those, those people, these elite, would also be called images of the God. So now you have class systems. The temples would typically have a garden around it so that there was a place to grow the food for the gods, and the people would be forced to work it. Okay, So you have people are created out of deficient or lesser or destroyed gods, so they're basically waste. Okay? That says something about their meaning, and they're created to be slaves for the gods. Their identity is in their slave labor. They create a class system that is there to control the lesser people on behalf of the gods. And uh, one extra little story in here. I was working in the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, this last week, which is one of the more significant of the stories, and there was a piece in it that stood out to me. One of the main characters is going to become a human, but he's out living in the fields with the animals, eating grass with the gazelles and stuff. And the gods decide to take one of their priestesses, and often the priestesses would offer their bodies sexually to men as a form of worship for the gods. So you can start to think of some worldviews and some implications of what that might mean about the women and their purpose in the world. Um, And the gods ask her to go seduce the man, and she does, and he lays with her for seven days, and then she takes him and introduces him to human food, which he gorges himself on, and then she introduces him to alcohol. Uh, The translation I read called it beer, and he gets drunk, and then in that process, he becomes human. Interesting implications for what these things say about what a human is and what our desires are. Okay, so if you take all of that weird stuff That's basically what the surrounding cultures believe. The Israelites have been introduced to all of these things. What does the biblical text say? God says in Genesis 1, he tells us that he shows up and he creates not out of 
disposable gods or deficient gods or rebellious gods. He creates out of his love and his will. And why does he create? He creates this space as a place where his people can flourish. Not where they can slave for him, where they can flourish. It's a seven-day process. Seven is a very important number for the ancient people. Um, By the way, he creates all of the cosmos, and then in the cosmos he creates a specific location, a garden that's going to be his temple. And again, that garden is for the people to flourish, not so they can feed him. And everything he's creating is good. He tells you he loves it. It's good. He's excited about it. When it comes time for him to create people, this is what he says. All right, I'm ready for that next one, Kim. He says, God said, let us make mankind. The Hebrew word under mankind is Adam. It's not a proper name, Adam. That doesn't work as his proper name until a few chapters in. It's Adam, which means human. That's what the word means. Let us make Adam in our image, much like the idols, much like those elite. Why are you not supposed to make idols? Because God already did. It's you. And he says, you can't do better than that. He's excited about his idols. Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Not so they can slave, so they can rule in partnership with him over his creation. That's a huge change in worldviews, a huge change in systems, okay? All right, and so as we continue on, uh, if you can go to the next one, please. It says, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no hierarchy. He creates everyone in his image equally. Male, female, it doesn't matter your nationality, it doesn't matter your economic status. There's no hierarchy in God's system. Male and female are specifically made in his image. That's powerful to the ancient people. That's crazy, and it should be powerful to us. You should start seeing some major worldview questions as we look around us. What is God's system? As we continue on, at the end of um, chapter 1, what does he do on the seventh day? He initiates something called Sabbath. You can go to the next one for me, please. On the Sabbath, what are you called to do? Rest. You're not a slave. You're a partner with him. He said, I didn't make you so that you can be defined by what you produce. You're defined because you carry his image. That is amazingly subversive, especially when God's saying this to a slave people. You are not defined by what you produce. Do you hear that? Because that flies in the face of what pretty much all of us believe about ourselves, doesn't it? I'm speaking to myself here. Literally, if you are somebody that needs to have a checklist, you should have resting on your to-do list because God commands it. It's something you're supposed to do. I'm going to do it today when I go home. Heather, will you remind me? I'm going to write on my to-do list that I need to rest. It is one of his commands. It's a job I need to do. I need to take time to rest. Hear me. You're not defined by anything you do. You're defined by who you are. You are his image bearer. 
one that he loves and he's excited that he created. You are somebody he called to partnership with him in the world. Okay, Um, as we get to Genesis 2, I'm skimming over lots of stuff, but when we get to Genesis um, 2.15, it says the Lord God took the Adam, the human, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That phrase, work it and take care of it in Hebrew, is the same phrase that gets used over and over again, especially in the book of Numbers, to tell the people how to take care of the temple. It's priestly language. Every human, every Adam, all of you are called to be kings. I'm specifically not saying kings and queens. There's no hierarchy. There's no difference. It's just kings and priests. The elite class in the ancient world. There is no elite class in God's system. All of us actually are the elite class in God's system. Every person has significant value. No one is above anybody else. Again, a major worldview push for them. This is completely radical for them. Radical in a modern term, not the 80s term. All right. Again, as we look at God creating humans, in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God said, it is not good for the Adam to be alone. Why? Because we're made in the image of the Trinitarian God. Last week, Cindy talked about Trinitarian love. If you understand what the Trinity is, we have one God that's made up of three persons. God always exists in loving community with himself. Three persons that make up the one God. There's no hierarchy between them. They're all in it together, taking turns serving each other willingly. What that, should that say about the body of Christ if we reflect him? Here he's saying, I made this human in my image, but he doesn't perfectly reflect it because he's not living in loving community. So... He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. That word helper is a powerful word. When I think of the word helper, if I had a business and I hired a helper, they would be my assistant. There's a hierarchy there, right? In my biblical interpretation class, I make my students do a word study on that word to find out what it means in Hebrew and how is it used. When you follow that word throughout the Old Testament, it almost always refers specifically to God, and if not to God, to the systems that he sends to help people. If there's any hierarchy at all in this system between the Adam and his helper, it would be the helper above. But the point is, there's no hierarchy here. It's a partnership that God says the human needs in order to fulfill his, their calling as an image bearer. Does that make sense? This has implications for our marriage. This has implications for community. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with the flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman uh, from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. You might notice those little letters after the word rib. Um, That's there for a reason. That word doesn't get translated to rib in Hebrew until much later Hebrew. Um, The translators interpret it wrongly back into the text. Everywhere else you see that word used, it means side. I think in upcoming translations of the Bible, you will start seeing that word change to side. It doesn't mean rib. It means side, and that has major theological implications. He didn't just take a little piece out of the human. He took the human and split him in half, and now you have two humans. That's powerful. Um, 
And what does he say? What does the Adam say when he sees his other half? If you could go to the, uh, let's see. Yeah, there we go. The man says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It recognizes that there is a, a difference between woman and man, but notice the emphasis is on that she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's recognition of difference, but the emphasis is on how much they have the same. Okay? That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and what do they do? They become one flesh. Both partners need to come together to make a unity that reflects the Trinity of God. Okay? If you could go to the next one, please. And this is what it looks like in a picture form. You have God creates in reflection of his Trinity. He has the Adam. He splits the Adam into two. And then they're brought together by God to form one united self. Does that make sense? That's the theology of what that means. There's not hierarchy. It's partnership. We're created for partnership, for allyship with those around us. That's, that's God's system. No hierarchies. No different values of people. All right. So um, now that I've probably lost half of you and the rest of you are falling asleep, we get to Genesis 3. We're almost done with this part. In Genesis 3, you guys know that that's the fall. Um, the fall, you have Adam and Eve. They stand before two trees. The tree of life, which reflects the systems of God, God's will, God's way, trusting God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to do it my way because I don't like God's system. I can do it better. Or the way that John talks about it in 1 John, the way of the Father or the way of the world. Adam and Eve stand before those trees, and they both choose to say, we're going to eat from the tree of the world. Okay, that's powerful. They Actually, it's ironic because they say they want to be like God, which is, again, it's ironic because they're made in his image. They already are like God, but they don't recognize their status, so they reject it and go for something different. How often do we do that? And they eat from this tree, and then the rest of Genesis 3 is telling us about the implications of that action. And what we see is what was supposed to be a beautiful partnership, a beautiful community that reflects the Trinity without status, with, with perfect love and companionship. It breaks. It turns into a chaotic mess right off the bat. Adam throws Eve under the bus. Their community's broken. In Genesis 3.15, God says, guys, I'm going to fix it, okay? And, and 1 John tells us that he fixed it. We talked about the atonement. But we're going to move on to the next part. In Genesis 3.16, there's this verse that often people talk about it. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This kind of almost supports a man is going to be head of the house and this is the perfect marriage. Here's the problem. That's not how that word desire is translated. In fact, even a few sentences later, it talks, uses that same word desire to talk about how sin desires to devour Cain. It's not a positive word here. It's a negative word. It's talking about the power struggles between people as they all want to dominate each other. And inevitably, somebody's going to overpower the other. The way that the beautiful partnership between man and woman was set up, the differences that we have when they aren't working properly 
kind of gives men a little bit of an advantage to dominate the woman. Not because that's ideal, but because of our sinful natures. Okay, I can explain that further if you want, uh, if you ask me about it. This is talking about the brokenness of marriage and the brokenness of community. The brokenness of relationships. People wanting to dominate each other. There wasn't hierarchy before, now there is. It could also speak to patriarchy as well. Um, okay, the next one. Okay, in Genesis 3.19, it tells us that now people are going to start living their lives identifying by what they work. They're going to say they need it for survival, but let me ask you, how much of the time that you're obsessing about your work, is it about survival or is it about your identity? I'm going to propose it's about your identity. Okay? Um, okay, if we were to move forward, we start to see the implications of all of this stuff. In Genesis 4, Cain decides that he wants to dominate Abel and kills him. The value of life has now decreased in his eyes. He can now take a life. What is a life? It's an image bearer. And God takes that personally throughout Scripture. If you look around the room at every person in this room, they are all image bearers of God, and he takes that personally. If right now I was to harm one of you, God takes it personally because I'm harming his image bearer. Okay? It's, it's a very big deal. When Cain kills Abel, this is a big issue. Um, we're seeing people no longer valuing life the way God does. I'm going to touch on one more. If we go to verse 19 in chapter 4, we meet uh, Lamech. It says he married two women. We get our first case of polygamy. didn't take us long. We just got to chapter 4. Polygamy was not God's ideal. It breaks up the proper community. It turns one demographic into property. The purpose of polygamy in the ancient world in many cases was for property, status, power, and it turns women into baby-making machines. It devalues people. The implications of the fall are people losing value in other people's eyes and becoming property, the creation of status, hierarchy. And not only does he devalue these women by taking them as property, but then we see that he talks about how somebody hurt him. And we don't know if it was accidental or intentional, but somebody hurts him, and he kills the man, and then he brags about it. Uh, sorry that that slide doesn't show up well enough in there. Um, what he says is, I've killed, a young, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech 77 times. God said that he would take care of Cain and protect him with his own justice. And Lamech says, I can create a justice that's better than God's. And it includes taking lives. I could keep going. I've edited the rest of what I was going to go on out. But this is what you should see here. When we're following the systems of Genesis 1 and 2, there's no hierarchy. There's no status. There's no dominance. It's a beautiful community of partnership working together to reflect God's image. And we're all the elite. We're all the kings. We're all the priests that God created in his creation. That's God's system. The system of the world is one of dominance, devaluing of others, demeaning of others, and that you're worthless. You're there to work. That's your identity, to work yourself to death. That's, that's what we see here. So if I now jump back 
to 1 John and look at our text. In 1 John, he tells us we're having a worldview conversation and we, got to, we need to choose which worldview we're going to pick. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Don't be like Adam and Eve and choose that tree of the world. If anyone loves the world, loves those worldviews, those systems of the world that demean other people, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Okay. Have I lost half of you? Have I lost? Okay, good. I know that was kind of heavy. I dumped a lot on you. But let's start looking at what are the implications of this in our life. The truth is we can say those are ancient worldviews, but the reality is they're really not. They're really not, right? So start looking at the world around you. Where do we see the world's systems taking place? Where do we see those? Do we see those in the way employees are treated? Uh, I've managed departments before. Um, there's always that struggle to turn an employee into somebody who's supposed to make you look better and make you successful. Is that how Jesus would have managed a department? How about this one? When you go to Starbucks, that person on the other side of the counter, are they a walking espresso machine? Or are they a person made in the image of God? When you interact with them, do you treat them like a walking espresso machine? Or do you make sure that they know that you see them as an image bearer? Do you say their name? Do you ask them about their day? Do you engage with them? Do you value them? Do you let them know that they're seen? Let me tell you, if you've ever been in a place where you don't feel seen, when somebody makes you feel seen, it's powerful. Um, I try to make it a habit to do that when I'm going through checkout lines or things like that to, to see their name tag and say something to them. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say, when I ask them about their day, you're the first person to ask me that today. That's powerful. That's the way of Jesus. Think about all the stories we see of Jesus as he goes to people that were considered lesser and he tells them he sees them. Think about Zacchaeus. He literally intentionally walks over to this guy that is socially unseen and says, I see you. And it immediately changes his life. That's the way of God. That's what Jesus does. That's the way of the Father, not the way of the world. The way of the world says, you look different than me. You think different than me. Therefore, you are lesser. How about your relationships. Are people in relationships with you because they're there to benefit you? Or is it so that you can benefit them? Uh, philosopher Immanuel Kant says, uh, this is my paraphrase, but he says, people are not the means to an end, they are the end themselves. Are the people in your life the end themselves? 
or are they there because of something they can provide you? There's so much that's packed in this, but I encourage you to start looking around at your daily life, or if you think your daily life is fine, look around at the world itself. Where are you seeing broken systems around you? What impact can you have in those systems? That's what it means to be a king and priest, is to change the systems around you to reflect his way, right? The ways of the world will fade away. The way of the Father is eternal and beautiful. And lastly, look at yourself. You are not created to be a slave. You are not defined by what you produce. You are defined by who you are, which is the image of God. And when you look in the mirror, I challenge you to do this. Look in the mirror. When I look in the mirror, it's not hard. I mean, I look good. For some of you, man, this is a little bit of a stretch. Um, just kidding. When, when you look in the mirror, I challenge you. Tell yourself, I'm an image of God. God created me so that when people see me, they will see him. And submit your heart to him and ask him what he needs to change in your heart so that you can grow in that area. But know that even still, God made you. And he's excited about you. The moment you start tearing yourself down, you're telling him he's wrong. That's a beautiful thing. You are defined not because of what you do, but because of who you are, image of God. All right, if I could um, please have the worship team come on up. We're going to move towards um, communion. As we're looking at systems, as we go into this, this communion, as we look at these elements, let's reflect on how Jesus lives out systems. In Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, um, I'll do it from the New Living Translation, it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't say, I'm God, so that's a status for me to hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. I made my slides too big. Um, instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being, a human being born at a low social class. He was born into a world of status, and he chose the lowest one. When he appeared in human form, and he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Next slide, please. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is Jesus worthy of glory? 
because he defeated systems. He stepped in and said, I'm not playing that game. And he calls us to follow him and have that same mindset. He didn't say, I'm all powerful, I can dominate. He said, I'm happy to step into the room at the lowest status possible so that I can pick other people up. How can we do that? As we go into communion, this is what I want to ask you to do. These elements are literally representing the way that God challenged the systems of the world. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. As you come up for communion, please come up on the outside, grab your elements, go ahead and sit down and partake of communion um, in whatever way you feel comfortable doing it, by yourself or with somebody close by you. But as you're reflecting, please ask God to transform your heart to help you understand what you can do to change the systems of the world in reflection of him. Okay, He challenged the systems of the world. How can we do it in our lives and the world around us? Father, thank you. Thank you for the world that you created, a world that flies in the face of anything we could possibly create. Our ideas are broken, they're messed up, they're upside down, they're hurtful, they're demeaning. But your truth, the way that you created it to be is beautiful and uplifting and sustaining and flourishing and loving, communing. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Voice. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.